You are now listening to Dawn and Sharia, the creators of Savvy Supervision System Podcast, where we meet to discuss the reality of social work supervision and give information and inspiration to support your leadership journey. So let's dig in. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, good people. We are back again um, with Savvy Supervision System Podcast. I am Sharia, and this is Dawn. And as always, we are happy to be here sharing some exciting stories, experiences, and hopefully some expertise to help you deal with being and evolving into the best supervisor or having the best supervision experience possible. All right. Today's topic is why, I guess, I don't know what we really want to call it. I guess why it's so important to make sure that your space as a supervisor is safe and supportive of all. There you go. That's what I'm going to say for now. So um, so we're going to start, obviously, with Dawn starting us with a story, a walk down memory lane, and we're going to have a conversation. I think the best way to have this conversation is for us to be honest and to know that we have continuing opportunities to learn together, but why it's so important that you start somewhere. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And so I think, you know, to begin a conversation about why it's important to adopt and cultivate an anti-oppressive, you know, social work supervision practice is, um, yeah, when we first started talking about this episode, there's a particular um, incident or relationship that came to mind that I felt would really be helpful to share. So once upon a time, in one of my first professional positions in human services, My supervisor at that time, who, to be fair, overall was one of my favorite supervisors. And she is an Italian-American woman. She had significant experience in the human services sector, both in government um, programs and in community-based organizations. And she and I, you know, for the most part, we had a good relationship and there's a lot that I've learned from her. But it became apparent to me, even in my young, you know, in my youth, relative youth at the time, that part of her approach, which was informed by her identity, um, was, was, was problematic and, and, and harmful in some ways. And it all started for me when... I was in a supervision session with her and she mentioned to me that someone who worked on the team that I was supervising. So at the time, this is in the 1990s in early to mid 1990s, I was a case manager and supervisor myself working with people with, who were living with HIV AIDS and their families. And one of the, I, I supervised a team of three caseworkers, including myself. Mm-hmm. And so one of my colleagues, or I guess supervisees, had started to grow locks, which I loved. I remember even to this day, was sitting down and just telling him, like, really looking forward to, like, you know, witnessing your journey, right? For many people, um, you know, locks are not just a hairstyle. And so... But in one of my supervision sessions with my then supervisor, she said to me that 
well, his locks were unprofessional and that I needed to talk to him about that and encourage him to consider a more professional hairstyle. And so I know that this is a topic that we're talking about more, you know, in popular culture now in mm -hmm. 2022, but even back then, for me, it was problematic and I felt very uncomfortable. And I, I knew immediately that I wasn't comfortable with it, but I didn't address it with her right away. Um, I eventually thought through it. You know, I saw it. I talked it through with one of my best friends at the time. And eventually I came back to one of my, you know, following supervision sessions and started a conversation with her and, you know, let her know that, um, A, I was uncomfortable um, approaching this as if it was like in a punitive way. Mm -hmm. And I gave her like an education about locks, locks as a style, like the cultural significance of locks and that, you know, it it's not unprofessional and to deem, you know, that style unprofessional, like definitely has some racist, you know, undertones. And so her initial reaction was she was so uncomfortable. She's like, are you calling me a racist? And no. So I had to you know, to take the time to explain all of this to her. And I will say over time, she, well, she did have a willingness to learn. Yeah, I think that's and important to she, recognize. Absolutely. She was willing to learn. She was very open. And, you know, in the end, you know, no one ever spoke to, you know, to my supervisee about his hairstyle because I also, you know, went to the employee handbook and wanted to, you know, to see what the exact language was around, you know, professional presentation and hairstyles. And there was nothing that anyone could, you know, could leverage to, you know, to effectively punish him for his hairstyle. Mm -hmm. And so that was just one, you know, situation. And it's one that always sits with me in this time now when we talk about ethical supervision and an anti-oppressive supervision that, you know, for me as a supervisor who was being supervised, if I didn't have that knowing, if I didn't have that analysis, if I didn't, you know, embrace our culture in the ways that I always yeah. have, then, or if I wasn't Black, if I was something who, if I was someone who, mm -hmm. you know, um, agreed with her, yeah. I, you know, it, it could have been a very different outcome that I believe would have been harmful to him and ultimately would have impacted his work. So, and I think it's important to like have the discussion now that the time, although it seemed very different then, there are still very much moments of the same presence today, right? Oh, the absolutely. same sense of um, what the dominant culture would perceive as professional, what the dominant culture would perceive as the right way to do it. And I think one of the hardest things to decide is when you are shifting your dominant privilege or whatever position you're in over the reality of that person's identity and their ability to serve, right? And so the reality was you, at the time, you did a few things that I thought are very good in the sense that you didn't know how to respond immediately. So you didn't need to, in the moment, just say anything. You wanted to really mm -hmm. sit with it and try to get information for yourself. But other times on the spot, you can challenge, right? Other times on the spot, you can say, you know, I'm having a hard time with this. 
for many reasons. One, because I'm not sure I understand the cultural um, um, uh, nuances for my for right, the person right. that I'm supervising around what their hair and their expressions look are for them. And two, I don't understand how this impacts their role and how this impacts their job and the ability to perform it. And so in the moment you could have done that, but I also think the the fact that you did it afterwards, there was nothing wrong with that either, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. what we have to, as as humans, not even a supervisor or anything, is to really just sit with it for a second to make sure that we wanna really address this in a way that best suits our emotional um, abilities at the time, but also, to protect ourselves and those who we serve, right? And in this position, you served your employee, right? Because the reality is we can make that a macro example and it be about the community, right? We Mm -hmm. can make it about how, you know, young men aren't doing such and such. And all of a sudden you put in a whole judgment on a community of young men. And as a result, you have a bias against them, right? And so that same, that same expression of what seems like this casual conversation around what's professional or not really came from a place mm-hmm. of power, but also came from a place of cultural identity for her. And so I want to talk about why that's important to recognize. Why is it important mm-hmm. to recognize that your cultural identity impacts how you flow and navigate other people's cultural identity, right? It doesn't equate to automatically being a racist, but it does equate to having privilege to have blind spots that create biases that offend and oppress and discriminate yep. others against others, yep. right? And so I think in that one little example, because I was like, oh, I'm going to come up with some examples too, but I'm like, we can, <laughs> we can hands we down, can flush it through right there. That's right? right. Because the reality was in many ways, you were also put in a place of oppression as the person being supervised, because say you, had, you said, say, say you did agree, right? Say you did go with it and you didn't agree you were being compliant Mm -hmm. to some form of oppression that you would have been perpetrating as the person of color yourself, right? So you would have been a part of this culture, supporting this person, saying that I love your hair, and then in the same breath telling them, I love your hair, but, right? I love your hair, but somehow it's not professional. The reality in that conversation is that it started as a cultural expression, which Mm -hmm. could be good or bad to someone else, but to that person they have a right to do it if it does not harm or offend other people within the environment right and so as a professional wouldn't it be sensible I mean we don't I don't know her experience at the time wouldn't it be sensible to before making a directive consider having a conversation that includes people of that culture to determine how it is best suited to either deal with it or to not even experience any form of oppression by just letting that go, right? How about you just need to be educated? And I'm going, and and you came back with a whole, I, I know Dawn, I'm sure you came back with some real good information as to why <laughs> it's, it's not right. But you were also put in a position of harm. And so as a supervisee, although you were a supervisor, you yourself didn't get the support that you needed in that moment. Right. Because you're put in a position to have to choose your identity. Right. My identity as a supervisor or my mm-hmm. identity as a black person. Right. And how unfair is it for everyone involved to not just start with, am I coming from a bias? 
right? So now we have these conversations more openly. I laugh because I was like, oh, I remember the first time I started locking, I was in my senior year of college. And mm-hmm. my, and I love her still to this day, there's no love lost. But my mentor at the time was like, you're not going to be able to get a job. And she really thought she was helping me. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was explaining, I was like, well, then if I can't get the job, then that's not the job for me. What I will not do is compromise my identity to fit in any longer. And that's my Mm -hmm. own work, my own stuff that at the time, and we're not talking at a time when hair, natural hair was a thing, right? It was very clear that you don't do natural, you have to look and respectability was a, a, a true statement of how you navigated workplaces. I took that risk at the time because for me, it is something that's connected to my culture. It is something more than just hair, right? But what she was trying to do in the moment was really in her mind, help me. But many places of privilege can come off as help, but can be oppressive in nature. And so why is that important for people to know? Because I feel like I got on the soapbox and I had to get off of it for a second. No, it's all good. But I I do want to say just one thing that... I appreciate you also, you know, mentioning like the impact on me because it took me many years to, you know, to realize that myself back then it was really just about, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, that my colleague, you know, was not going to be punished because of his hairstyle, but, you know, it wasn't until many years later, you know, having more experience and just having a sharper analysis of these things that I realized, yeah, like, the position that it put me in and I was able to connect with like, mm-hmm. you know, just the way that I, the emo- my own emotional response to it, yes. you know? So I just, yeah, I just wanted to name that and that I appreciate that you, because right. There's layers to this. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it, you know, it doesn't always just impact one person. Right. And yeah. So why is it important? Because you know, the more that we, the more that we've worked to create this training and the more that like I have delved into my experience as a supervisor, my experience as a supervisee and whatever, you know, literature and information that's out there, the more that I, the more that I realize and appreciate just the layers, you're never just like supervising one person, even if that's, even if you're technically only responsible for supervising one person, you're not just you know, you're not just supervising that one person. You're also setting precedents. It's, it's in a way, it's conditioning folks, right? You're conditioning folks into what you believe or what the system believes is, is appropriate or, you know, what is professional or what the standards are. Standards. And, <laughs> and when, when, when folks who often are marginalized are not included in that, you, it can be it can cause harm, especially at a time when folks are growing professionally and they're, you know, they're cultivating their career. Like if you're sending a message and, but this is the other thing, you also can be in alignment with harmful like rules, regulations and laws, right? So in 2022, we have the Crown Act, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm broadcast, I'm you know talking to you now from Baltimore, Maryland, where the Crown Act is in effect here, where you can't discriminate against folks in employment okay. 
Absolutely. you know, based on hairstyles, especially in a racial context, you can't do that. We didn't have a crown act back in the nineties when, Absolutely you know, not. that situation, you know, <laughs> happened. And so he might have been able to have been terminated and lost his job and lost, you know, the ability to provide for his family. You know, at that time he had a very young family <clears throat> because of his hairstyle. And so it's important for us to really look at supervision and our roles as supervisors in the broadest context available. But not only that, specifically in the human services, we should make sure that we're not causing harm because our work, whether it's macro, micro, is focused and should be focused on deconstructing the systems that are yeah. causing harm to folks. Yes, we yes, shouldn't yes. be doing that within our organizations or within our practice when, you know, when we are charged with supporting, supervising, guiding, affirming, mm -hmm. you know, the people that we're supervising, we can't be reinforcing the very systems that our work is supposed to be dismantling. Absolutely. I mean, I think that just speaks to so many areas of power and privilege when it comes to mm -hmm. actually recognizing the layers. First off, there you know, we didn't give a definition, but I think you just did a good job at explaining, you know, just the concept of oppression, but who is oppressed? And therefore, in turn, the layers that you might as your individual identity have and participate in, in oppressing people without even knowing, right? And or consciously knowing, right? So there's conscious and, sub and unconscious being able to be biased. But the truth is, that you have a responsibility in this field specifically, and I think you should have a responsibility in general, but in this field, you have a responsibility to serve and to be able to serve in a way that keeps you aware of bias, keeps you from the opportunity of harming and perpetrating more harm on communities that already have enough things up against them that we don't need to then in turn be a part of those systems that reinforce it over and over again. Right. Because as we deconstruct, we as individuals need to be a part of that deconstruction. Right. You as an individual need to change your thinking. You as an individual need to be able to change and be aware of who you favor, who you spend more time with, regardless of and, and being able to break it down into nuances of identity, not just the ones that you're comfortable with. Right. Exactly. You know, I can be comfortable with saying that I'm a black woman, but can you be comfortable enough to break it down into black, queer, um, unemployed? Under underserved, right? You've got so many like uh, person that may use drugs. Can you break it down further where you can see some of your bias comes out because you have power in that position, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where, as I believe, as social workers, as those who serve communities, until we do that individual work and deconstruct systems, we are going to be far away from the end goal, far away from it without doing that. Because your full identity, in those layers, there's opportunity for you to be the oppressor. If you can accept that, then you can also learn that you can heal and possibly offer opportunities for others who may not have the same privileges as you. Mm -hmm. so. no. <laughs> Get off no, my back for a second. <laughs> no, 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 that's spot on. And then there's one other thing that I wanted to make sure to mention you know, in this conversation is that we, you know, we need to be able to, to analyze, like, what is the impact of this on the people and communities that we serve, mm -hmm. right? 
So if we're reinforcing and we're upholding oppressive symptom, oppressive system, excuse me, when we are supervising folks, we have to know that that's going to trickle down into the work that they're doing. Yes. You know, in many different ways, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it impacts the way that they assess and evaluate someone's mental health or someone's eligibility for programming or, right. And so we, we can't overlook the direct and the indirect, often indirect impact that our supervision, you know, has on the folks that we're supposed to be helping, the folks that we're supposed to be supporting through their own liberation, right? So I think if we if we only look at it through such a narrow lens as, well, this, this is who I'm directly supervising, then we really lose a tremendous opportunity to be able to ensure that our supervision is as humanistic and humane as possible. Yes. And I think, you know, when we when we think about what we can do and how we can better our experience, all involved, both the supervisee as well as the supervisor, part of that is being open to continuing learning, right? We talk mm-hmm. about, you know, the L and the, in that positioning, but when we think about it specifically, this is about continuous learning around your own identity, but the identity of the world, which also includes history, which includes mm-hmm. true history, not make-believe what you want to believe because of your individual right. experience, but real history that includes multiple layers of oppression that has to do with baby being in the U.S., multiple layers of oppression and views of racism that might have to do with being in other countries, right? And so really being able to say, how do I continue to learn so that my um my biases are able to be seen by me as well as I can pick up on those that I never even knew were a part of my experience, right? Mm -hmm. And the only way we can do that is if we're open to information, we're open to being wrong, right? Get get a little uncomfortable supervisor. You may have to be wrong and you may have to be okay with that. No, not may, you need to be okay with that in order to learn and to grow and to even develop where your blind spots are so you can help really true impact. And I think I always like to close on making sure you validate people's experiences. In that moment, when you were harmed, your supervisor was needing you to do something to harm another person, right? So the validation validation that you needed was for you, but also for that person that had never even knew that you were validating them, right? Just by advocating Mm -hmm. for them, by making Mm -hmm. the time or taking the time to really say what you will not do is land this oppression on someone other than myself, right? Mm-hmm. You got it to me and I have, and I'm, and I'm bearing the burden for a moment, but what you will not do is take this to another layer on my watch, right? And that's really being able to say, I validate the experience of those who I care for as a supervisor, but I also validate the experience that I have when it comes to my identity and when people oppress me, so. Mic drop. <laughs> and on that note I hope that you got something great from this experience as always Dawn and I can keep talking and we will keep talking probably more, more about these subjects um, I think it would be really cool if you actually get the opportunity to come to our free webinar in the end of March um, I can't remember the date at this point but I'll make sure to drop the information or we'll make sure to drop the information in our write-ups um, you'll probably see something mentioning that if you are a social worker and you are looking at how to be 
um, anti-oppressive social worker and supervisor, I think it'll be a good opportunity to come and have further discussion with us on this specific topic. For this mentor moment, we are really going to talk about anti-oppressive and just the framework of really looking at it within supervision. And so I want to start off with a definition, just really um, an informal definition of anti-oppressive. And it's basically, it looks at the framework where methods and processes in which we understand how systems of oppression, such as colonism, um, colonizing, uh, racism, sexism, homo homophobia, transphobia, classism, and ableism and, and, uh, and very different um, forms of discrimination may have actually come into action. And look, we look at it really from a structural, a system, a system position, as well as the individual, not just interpersonal, really looking at how anti-oppressive practices and goals seek to recognize and excuse me, dismantle discrimination and power imbalances. And so when we're talking about it as supervisors, this is such a important factor that we have to have our skill set um, and our ability to understand the history of social work, the history of supervision, the dynamic and the imbalance with power and control and the importance of understanding that we, we all seek to be understood and seen. And we have what I would consider the right to those things. And so really anti-oppressive supervision takes a real like look at ourselves and our biases and how they might offend, harm, or participate in some structural system <clears throat> or interpersonal based oppression. And so really looking at this definition for yourself and knowing that the purpose of understanding this foundation is to really build a capacity of not just the def understanding the definition, but actually being able to participate and advocate in ways that support not just ourselves, but also those we serve and service being also those who are in our, within our staff. And so really being able to look at, our, look at building our capacity and our understanding of anti-oppressive um, supervision, and then ultimately making sure that we are comprehending the information so that it can become applicable or practical, right? Where you are literally practicing what you preach, right? You are actually acknowledging and seeing people's individual strengths and individual personalities and identities as a part of what you need to not only learn, but also respect and have dignity for in your setting as a supervisor. And I think really for this mentor moment, I wanted to really talk about the definition, the, the reason why it's important, but lastly, putting it into action, really fighting for things like anti-Blackness, really fighting for things like um, trans rights, right? really putting into actions, not just our words, but even within our supervision, creating an environment that is safe, that is um, anti-poverty, anti-nonviolent, um, really creating an environment where anyone that you work with can feel safe enough to show up as their fullest self and not be harmed and not be put in a position to endure biases that come from not just not from just the world, but also you as the individual supervisor. So really thinking about the definition, how, how you have learned to deal with or understand your own implicit biases, but then also how have you unpacked these different biases 
to a place where you can make your environment safe for those you serve. And so I encourage you all to continue to learn things, to build on your own anti-oppressive framework and how you see or believe you can support change, growth, and safety. Let me repeat that, change, growth, and safety for all those that you serve. I hope this mentor moment was helpful. Again, if you, if you have, haven't already, please make sure you come and check us out. Look back at some of our previous um, or listen back to some of our previous podcasts. Again, this is Savvy Supervision System with Sharia and Dawn, and we hope that you enjoy this podcast and these different mentor moments. Take care.